Welcome to the NM Cool podcast. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte Domandi. NM Cool is the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, and its fifth annual summit is happening in the spring of 2022. This is a time of uncertainty and profound change when so many of us are fatigued from multiple stresses, and so it's more important than ever to focus on effective collaboration and good working relationships. This series of six podcasts addresses some big topics facing people who are working with the land, and we hope it helps you stay on course and resilient. And the sound you're hearing right now is the sound of bees that I just recorded a little while ago with Melanie Kirby, whom I'm delighted to welcome to this podcast series. She will be keynote speaker at the NM Cool event on April 27th. That's both in person in Albuquerque and online via Zoom. You can find out more at nmcewl.org. Melanie Kirby is a member of Tortugas Pueblo. She's the extension educator for the land-grant program at the Institute of American Indian Arts, where we are sitting right now. She's queen bee breeder at Zia Queen Bees, which you can find at ziaqueenbees.com. And we're here to talk about bees and all kinds of things. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Mary Charlotte. So glad to be with you today. It's great to be with you, too. Bees are such an interesting and important part of so many of our lives and even parts of our lives that we're not really aware of because they are incredibly important pollinators. How did you start in the whole world of bees and beekeeping? Well, I like to describe it as I was introduced to them by assignment. I had enlisted as a Peace Corps volunteer after finishing my undergraduate degree at St. John's here in Santa Fe. And I knew that I wanted to be outside. Um, I knew that I wanted to work, quote unquote, in the bush if possible. I had done some outdoor science education. I'd been a lifeguard for many years and had gotten to work at a a national park in the summer. Um, And so I, I just had this real calling or I'd say um, longing to be outside and work outside. So when filling out the application, this was back in the days where you had to color in all those little bubbles and um, the Scantron sheets. And I remember coming across this question that said, do you mind working with stinging insects? And I thought, ants? What? Oh, what oh, I don't know. And then I want to appear as flexible as possible. So I marked no, that I do not mind working with stinging insects. And then lo and behold, when I um, was accepted and got my assignment, it said beekeeping. And I, I started laughing because I hadn't even thought about these. And um, so, yeah, that was my first sort of introduction to them was by assignment. And I was stationed in Paraguay in South America as a ag sector beekeeping extensionist volunteer and at that point in time it was 1997 and there were not many websites up yet at the time the internet was just barely getting going so I did the old hoof and gumshoe kind of uh, footwork and went to the library and checked out some books and (laughs) and tried to read up on it because I had no previous experience until then. And so what was it like? I mean, did you fall in love? Did you get stung all, you know? Um, I would definitely say it was, it was definitely a thrill at first sight. I remember getting some bees up my pants. That was pretty (laughs) exciting. Um, And working with them in South America too. I had no idea that there would be different behaviors of bees. I just thought bees, they sting, they're all ornery. And the bees particularly 
that are down in South America do tend to be more aggressive. So I had nothing to compare them to. So my first two years of beekeeping, I thought all bees were like that. And um, over time, I just really became fascinated with them, not only with their architecture and their behavior, but with the stewardship of them, with the process of animal husbandry and interacting with them and the uses that humans had come up with for um, some of their harvests, whether it was honey and using it as medicine, also the wax, using it for making candles or for um, making salves. And so I really became quite enamored of just these marvelous little creatures. And over time, they really introduced me to this larger world of what it means to to live in, in a particular space, but to also be able to plan for it. I mean, I, I feel like honeybees are this keystone species that really help to demonstrate to us how interconnected the world is, not only between the landscape, but also between the cosmos, really. Um, you know, it's this big shining orb in the sky that's shining down and it's creating this process of photosynthesis within these plants, which then are creating these nectars and these perfumes, which are calling out to these beautiful pollinators to come and visit. And then life happens, right? Pollen gets exchanged, seeds are formed, and the next generation can happen. And in that process, there's this whole symbiosis between the pollinators and between the the flowers that takes place and they cannot live without the other. Um, and I found that just to be so very beautiful. And the fact that there's this choreography, this cyclical choreography that's happening every spring and summer and for millennium, it's been happening. And it just really put me in my place. So I like to say it just took one small little fuzzy and buzzy insect to, to make me realize just how interconnected we are and how much more I, I want to learn. Talk about the importance of bees and pollinators in general, but, you know, bees in particular to our food system. Yeah. So, you know, I like to try and dispel this long sort of standing myth or or misunderstanding. You know, a lot of folks tend to, when we think of bees, we we tend to think of honeybees because we think, you know, honey, that's where it comes from. and, And bees are pretty popular in that sense, but they have become what I describe as sort of exploited poster child of pollinators. And so they're this one organism that can help introduce us to this broader world. But unfortunately, a lot of emphasis has been put only on them. And so one of the sort of misunderstandings that's, that's perpetuated over time is that, uh, you know, especially here in the Americas, people tend to think that honeybees are exotic or that they're not native to this continent. But that's actually not the case. We have fossil evidence that's 14 million years old of our own Native American honeybee species here. Oh that, my goodness. Yeah, that was called Apis mellifera nearctica. And so Apis mellifera is the honeybee species. Um, the nearctica is the, the trinomial aspect, that third name, which actually denotes a place. And so right now, there are over 30 different what we call ecotypes or strains of honeybees but they're all the same species. So just like humans, we're all human, but we have different races and different backgrounds. And some of us know how to live better in colder climates or in warmer climates. And so same with with the bees. So in that sense, I like to think of the honeybees that we have now, um, our modern honeybees, as being uh, reintroduced cousins to this ancestor bee. So like horses, they were here 
pre-contact, pre-colonial times. Then there was a climatic event, an, an ice age, right? And we didn't, you know, they weren't around, or at least as far as we know. And then they were reintroduced as, as people came over to this continent. Do we know how old the kind of cultivation of hives and honey and honeybees is in human history? You know, it's it's lengthy for sure. And that's what's been really fascinating to learn over time as I've kind of embarked on this journey. I, You know, originally my plan was get my degree, do Peace Corps, and then move to San Francisco and be a DJ. Like that was my life plan. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bees found me and now they're my DJs. So my, it's kind of, it's really changed a lot of things in my life and created this path that I didn't expect that's taken me around the world. And part of part of that journey has been to learn about the history of bees and their relationship to humans and how that fits into our food system and how important they are. And so interestingly, the oldest known cave paintings of honey hunters is in Spain, in Valencia. It's called the Cueva de las Arañas, or the, the Man of Bee Corps, but it's actually a, a painting of a woman, honey hunter, who's up in a tree collecting honey. And I should know how old that is, but it's escaping me at the moment. But it's, it's thousands of years old because it's prehistoric. But it shows that there was already this relationship where humans were um, collecting right? And there's three actual kinds of what we call bee, bee interactions. There's bee killing, bee having, and bee keeping. So imagine being prehistoric times and you may not necessarily have all the tools you need, but you kind of take what you can and you run, right? Without real regard to whether or not whatever you're taking is able to, to survive. Flash forward a few thousand years and then now you've got some tools where, you know, such as a skep hive with like a woven basket where you're able to keep bees in it there, you have them, they're in there, but you're not necessarily able to manage them, right? And then flash forward again. And now we have beekeepers where we've developed um, various tools and equipment that can actually allow us to interact with our bees, but to respect their own natural architecture and space and not actually destroy their comb and be able to harvest and also ensure that they're healthy and that they have what they need. So over time, we've gotten better at our stewardship with bees. And when settlers were coming over to this continent, you know, they didn't know what they were going to find. So they brought pigs, chickens, horses, sheep, seeds, plants, foods from their own home countries to sort of help them begin their, their lives here. And then bees were part of that. So the Spanish brought some and then additional Europeans, and that was starting in the 1600s. And over time, you know, I mean, that's a very long, arduous journey. So a lot of those bees didn't make it, but what was brought was what was easy access to the ships, right? And then as bees, um, especially honeybees in particular, I mean, there's over 20,000 different kinds of bees that we know of globally from the solitary species, which some are as small as the, the size of a, of a pinhead to what they even call mega apis, these larger bee species that are the size of your thumb. You know, honeybees are just one of those 20,000 different kinds. And so once the honeybees came over, because they are generalist, um, meaning that they know how to eat a variety of plants, they're not just specialized with only one plant, they were able to adapt and proliferate. And so our American bees now are really a reflection of our peoples. They're a product of the melting pot. 
When steamships were invented, then a new influx of bees were brought over from even farther away places, from the Middle East, from Egypt. And then in the 20s, they actually shut the borders because of what was called the Isle of Wight disease, which is a type of mite, it's a microscopic tracheal mite. So they shut the borders. And that law is still on the books to this day. So technically, we're not allowed to bring in bees from other countries. Now, there are actual breeding programs with a few select um, university labs or, or government-run labs, USDA labs, that are able to bring in semen of bees, but they can't actually bring in the bees. <laughs> so, yeah, so believe it or not, there's this whole process of even instrumental insemination where, like with other livestock species, they're able to do it with honeybees, although it's under a microscope. <laughs> and they're able to, to back cross to get to about 97% of the original stock line. And so those programs that are bringing in some of the semen, which has to be screened, and it's only got a certain amount of shelf life, so it has to be used right away. And it's pretty um, tedious to collect, <laughs> as one could possibly imagine. It's a tool that helps them to speed up time in regards to breeding, but it allows them to bring in naturally resilient stock lines or genetics that they're able to, to help reinvigorate our own populations here. Because unfortunately, the exploited poster child, as I call them, have experienced a number of hardships as well. So just like with industrialized agriculture, you know, a lot of emphasis has been put on monocrop agriculture, which has been we know is proving to be really detrimental to landscapes and even to our food systems. And so the same has, has happened to a certain degree with, with even bee breeding because we have um, you know, not very many operations who are breeding bees, but then some of the ones that are breeding bees are kind of experiencing a bottlenecking. And so you know bees can become inbred like other species and then you add in compromised forage, you add in pesticides, you add in other environmental catastrophes such as drought or wildfires and it's a lot for any species to endure and so there's there's been a lot of sort of calls for this canary in the coal mine because it's raising awareness but the honest truth is that they're introducing us to this larger problem of just land stewardship and that it's not just one species of bee it's all the species out there that are being affected and all, all of life is being affected. I once read a book about bees and almond plantations in California, mm. and they, because the trees, the almond trees flower fairly early in the spring, the bees aren't awake yet, so they truck these bees in in semi-trucks and pallets and put them out, and then after the trees have flowered, they put them back in these pallets and put them on the trucks and take them to Florida, and they just seem to me like exploited migrant labor. And I was like, this can't be sustainable. You know, it is a very big practice, especially among some of the larger operators. You know, I think it was in 2008 marked the year when the price for honey actually came in under the price for pollination. So you had a lot of producers start focusing on pollination or what we call migratory pollination events where exactly like you describe it, they're, you know, putting their livestock on a on a truck and yeah. and taking them from event to event. And when I say livestock, it's not so much, you know, a bee with a tag in her ear, right? <laughs> um, but more that they're alive and they have value. 
And so um, they really do provide a number of services. And I will say this, a lot of these commercial operators who do this really care deeply about their bees. You know, they're trying their best to keep them healthy, but they're also trying to make a living at it. And this is one way in which they found to do that because it pays not only for that service of pollination, but it allows them to employ crews from, some of them are very global actually, you know, um, workers, again, migrant workers who are coming from other countries, um, but also even just Americans who are living here to work. What's become really unfortunate about it is that a lot of these larger pollination events are also tied into these monocrop agriculture spaces. So you look at something like the almond bloom in the Central Valley of California, which spans over a thousand miles. There's just not enough local bees or beekeepers to pollinate all of that. So then you have these people trucking in from other distances and farther and farther away. Burning fossil fuels. (laughs) Right. And a bigger carbon footprint for sure. But you also look at some folks who say in in the northern tier of the country who, you know, normally in February at that time of year, their bees would be either under snow or dormant and they wouldn't have any cash flow coming in. Well, here's an opportunity to actually create some cash flow and so they'll they'll take their bees out there and they're helping to to feed people right but it's not the prettiest of pictures especially when it comes to the type of agriculture that's being done because it would be very different if these were pollination events with clean beautiful forage right but a lot of these monocrop agriculture situations are on very heavily sort of tread you know the chemical treadmill whether it's dealing with herbicides or pesticides, aerial fogging, spraying, all these different things that can happen. How does that affect the bees? Yeah, so what happens is, you know, we tend to think, oh, you know, I'm following the label, that's not gonna cause a problem. Well, the the bigger issue is that there's a lot of synergism that happens between different sprayings. So these cocktails happen and research on that has not um, been, very prevalent. That's because it's hard to control, right? So various tank mixes. And so even though by the label, it says it may not kill a bee, once it actually gets in combination with other chemicals, it can become more toxic. The other thing too is some of these pesticides, you know, yes, they'll kill the target organism that they're trying to remove, but it also really damages the beneficial organisms that they're trying not to actually affect. And so what ends up happening is, you know, a lot of the stuff ends up on the pollen or it's systemic and ends up in the nectar. And then these pollinators are picking it up. They're taking it home. It may not kill them outright, but it can build up within their food stores, within their colony. And it can affect everything from cognitive learning and navigation to even just um, physiological development, especially of the younger um, larvae and, and pupae. So there's a lot of research that still needs to be done. And there's a big push actually. Project APSM is one organization that's partially funded by the Almond Board, but in conjunction with beekeepers and other ag community members and stakeholders who have really been pushing towards trying to diversify some of these monocrop agriculture spaces. They want the almonds, right? But they want hedgerows or they want um, pollinator corridors where additional plantings can be promoted of diverse blooms that are nutritious and that are not sprayed. And so we're seeing a big push on that now that's, it's taken years, but it's really gaining some traction. So there's, 
things are changing. There's also self-pollinating almonds coming out now. With the drought in California, there's things people are taking out old trees and who knows what's going to happen. But at some point, because you're right, it's it's not overly sustainable. And so there's things will be changing because they're, they have to. So getting back to the question of bees and the food system, it's not just almonds. It's all other kinds of food, you know, mm-hmm. crops that need bees that need pollinators. Right. You know, they say every third bite you take is as a result of a pollinator. But I would actually add to that that it's it's pretty much almost every bite you take. <laughs> because a lot of things are in relation to pollination, even if they weren't directly pollinated. For instance, milk. Okay. Cows are making that milk. But cows are eating alfalfa. Who's pollinating that alfalfa? So the bees, in a sense, are helping to make milk as well. And so they've become really integrated into our food system. You know, the one of the terms we use is, you know, it's angels of agriculture. I like to call them the midwives of agriculture. But they've become the backbone of American agriculture production. And our reliance on them for pollination has really expanded over the years, especially as industrialized ag has expanded. But also therein lies the problem with the exploitation because there's a lot of other uh, pollinator species that do a lot of work but they don't get the recognition and part of that is just because they're quote unquote unmanaged or considered wild pollinators like what such as some of the um, alkaline sweat bees that are used a lot with alfalfa pollination those live in the ground you can't necessarily dig them up and take them elsewhere right You've also got leafcutter bees and some mason bees, which those are newer industries that their folks are learning how to manage them and, and be able to, to share them and move them for varying events. But what it really comes down to is having these integrated landscapes because even our wild pollinators are, are at risk of losing habitat, whether it's due to overdevelopment or you know weather issues and environmental Uh, stressors that are happening, you know, their numbers are declining as well. We just don't have as clear a picture of it because people haven't been looking at them as closely as they have with honeybees. But all of these varying pollinators really, um, I mean, it's a billion dollar, our food system is billions and billions of dollars, but pollination within that is a a multi-billion dollar enterprise or industry. And so without them, we would not, we'd definitely not be eating the same. But I think a lot of it is is rooted in what we can do as individuals for stewardship, right? So whether you have a home garden or a container garden, or you're a farmer or a rancher, there are things that you can do. Even being a school teacher with just, you know, a school playground, putting in what we call these floral oases or these pollinator plots where you can really add to the available forage because what's happened is we've the broader landscape has been fragmented, right? We have a city, we have concrete jungles, and then we have some wildlands. How do bees or pollinators get from one area to another if there's not these corridors with which they can travel? And, you know, an an analogous sort of example would be like with the monarchs, right? Right. And their need to, to migrate for not only their breeding grounds, but to get back to where they were, and they need food along the way. I mean, I know people back east who are literally planting wild milkweed gardens in their Mm -hmm. yards. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much that folks can do. And I I often tell people, you know, in 2006, when CCD or colony collapse disorder hit the airwaves, um, people were 
you know, the first thought was, oh, I want to save the bees. I'm going to become a beekeeper. But really what's needed is for us to look at it from the ground up, right? Because if pollinators need more forage, that means we're going to need to plant more. But it also means we're going to need healthy soil in which to grow that because otherwise the forage will be contaminated right? or it won't be as healthy. And then when we were, you know, a lot of eco anxiety is going around um, and, and increasing in all generations of peoples, but especially the young folks as to what kind of planet are they going to inherit. Eco anxiety. Eco anxiety. That's, right. that's a term. And you've got young, youngish kids. I do. I are do. they experiencing that? Um, I think in their own ways they are. Uh, on the one hand, they see their parents, you know, myself and my farm partner, they see us working with farmers and working with bees and doing what we can in those ways. So I think they see that we have not given up hope, you know, but I can only imagine for those who don't get to see that, what their mindset is and what their worries are. But it really does come down to building healthy soils and that all rests in regenerative agriculture, which all that concept is really rooted in ancestral and indigenous knowledge systems and practices. So my work, especially as a mestiza, has really incorporated my, not only my upbringing and my philosophical beliefs of, you know, that are, that are very in tune with an indigenous worldview of that things are interconnected and that what we do now has consequences down the road. So we need to not just think about immediate gain, but think about long-term stewardship strategies. And then also being able to recognize and acknowledge that it's going to take multiple knowledge systems. It's going to take sustainable scientific approaches, but also ancestral knowledge and the ability to combine these things. Because when we, you know, the first scientists, the first naturalists, the first ecologists, the first doctors, teachers, and the first beekeepers were all indigenous peoples and all peoples on this planet, regardless of race, have ancestors. So we all have a connection to these ancestral ways somewhere in our past. And it's a matter of reconnecting with those, which will then reconnect us with the land and really promote reciprocity in the in the actions that we choose to take. Because in order for us to feed next year, right, we have to take care of the seeds that are formed this year. And so it really does pull in our relationship to to working alongside our plant and animal relatives in order to survive. And and in most times, our hope is to thrive. One thing I wonder, I mean, when you say that pollination is a multi-billion dollar industry, is there a vision of a regenerative agriculture in which pollinators are incorporated into the system and, and, and it goes from being an industry to being a part of the farm? Um, most definitely. I mean, and if you look historically, you know, when we had a lot of smaller farms, people had a variety of animals. They didn't, they didn't grow just one thing and they didn't have just one thing, right? It was more permaculture based, a lot of life in one place, meaning they had pigs and chickens and bees and grew vegetables and had fruit trees and also grew cotton for fiber. They had a variety of things that they were growing. Including bees? Including bees, right. And so I think that we're seeing a, a return to that. We're seeing an influx of smaller farms or people inspired 
to get back into farming or to have a backyard garden, right? Have backyard chickens, have backyard bees, right? And one of those, one of the sort of main kind of takeaways from that is people crave that connection. And that's one of the reasons I think why bees have been so popular. And dare I say, on the annoying side, kind of trendy, <laughs> which who am I to, to dismiss someone's interest or to say that they should not have the opportunity to. But what I always like to share with folks is it starts with building habitat. And if we can focus on that, then then yeah, the bees we have and the more bees that we want, they'll be able to to live well. One of the problems has been that the trendiness factor has kind of oversaturated certain areas. So we have a big boom in urban beekeeping because people crave these connections, right, and to want to sort of reconnect with nature. That's a good thing. The harder part is that when when we have an oversaturated area, then it really outcompetes other species of of other pollinators. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So there's too many bees in like an urban area. There could be. There could be. It's just something for us to be aware of, you know. And especially in places like New Mexico, where you know we all kind of congregate around the same watering holes because there's not very many watering holes. You know, it can be it can become oversaturated. And I say that only because I know that there's a big interest and a big need for us to also ensure that these other pollinator species, these other um, what we call solitary bee species have what they need to because they're they're going to need forage as well. Right. So solitary bee species that aren't honeybees. Right. Now you are a bee breeder. Tell us about that. I mean, you breed queen bees and that's mm-hmm. its whole own world. But I mean, you were saying before that you, when you first went to Paraguay and met all these bees that were more aggressive and you thought that's just how bees are, Mm -hmm. are you interbreeding different, just different kinds of bees to make more resilient subspecies or what does it, what does it look like? Great question. And I'm so glad you asked. Um, I describe myself as a seed saver but where the bees are the seeds. Okay. So what within my specialization, what, what I've really become fascinated with, and, and it's really because of this amazing journey that the bees have taken me on around the world and still more places I want to go, but really getting to see not only what the similarities are in different places, but also what the distinct differences are. And a lot of it is very site-specific because Bees, um, like other organisms, like birds, are very in tune with where they're living. They can anticipate certain seasonal events and they plan accordingly. Even the whole, you know, gestation and breeding calendar is based on on these locational events and also on the tilt of the earth on the axis, whether it's summer or winter or fall. You know, there's a reason why Easter, we think of eggs and we think of bunnies and all these and the birds and the bees, right? All these sort of things that are starting new life because it's seasonally appropriate. So what's been really interesting is to see that bees in different places all have this really profound relationship with their location. And so I like to call it this, this what I call the importance of, of place, power, and purpose in pollinator stewardship. And the bees that's are a lot ones, of peace. That's a lot of peace. Yeah, the bees have really taught me that. And that it's really important to look at where you're at and what that means. And so as I started learning about these different kinds of bees and also learning from their stewards, um, not only cultural aspects, but traditional practices, and even their own philosophies and how they approach bees and, and their 
their stewardship of them, I started to realize that that's something that I can do in my own home area as well. And so knowing that bees here are cousins to this, to our ancestral honeybee, right? And that they've become sort of this melting pot, just like we are, that there's a need for us to find what works well in our area because one size doesn't fit all. And there's not one super bee that's going to be great everywhere. So I really started to select just like I would with plants, what is growing well here? what's doing well, what's staying healthy, what's pest and disease resistant. And a lot of that is just rooted in observation. So I, I like to call it my um, father time tested, mother nature approved regimen, <laughs> right? Because they're the ones doing all the work. I'm just trying to pay attention to it and observe it. And so, yeah, over time, I've been able to try some different stock lines. I'm very selective about what I bring in. When I collaborate with other bee breeders, I looked for those who have similar philosophies, such as myself, where we're really looking at promoting natural resilience. There's a few varying pests and diseases that have come more into the foreground over the past few decades that a lot of breeding efforts have been focused on. Varroa mite is one of them, which is like a tick that actually can vector disease on the bees, and those can spread very easily. And so when we especially in our area because we don't have a lot of localized production. Um, we do have a lot of bees coming in from other places because the, the demand exceeds the supply. And for for the novice beekeeper, for those who are getting into it, they may not realize how that impacts our local bees and our local stewards. And so that's one of the efforts that I really try and share with folks is that not all bees are the same. <laughs> They're not all bred the same, just like not all plants or seeds are the same. And to really do their research into whether or not what they're choosing to bring in will benefit our collective community or is it posing more of a, of a risk of bringing in some negatives like other pests and diseases, which does happen. Um, and when people are starting out, they may not realize all this sort of these details, right? But the devil is in the details. <laughs> and so, yeah, I've been able to, especially here in New Mexico, where we don't have a large beekeeping industry. And that's really rooted in the fact that we don't have a lot of water. So forage is limited. That's a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, we always want more water. We always want more growth. But it's also a blessing in that it does keep a lot of um, high production challenges from occurring. So I'm able to be pretty selective about what I bring in, but also where, you know, this is where the, the plains and the deserts meet the mountains. So we have very extreme topography here. And so the, our landscape can test our bees better than I feel like any lab could, you know, really, because it's, it's wild. It's the yeah. wild west out here. And so finding those strains that can do well here are like gems. I, I really look at it as even our our cultural, the cultural presence of our, of our Pueblo peoples here. They have learned over thousands of years how to live here in this very dramatic landscape. Did they keep bees? You know, I've heard stories from a few of the Pueblos that are up near the mountains that they remember their, their grandfather and the great grandfather going up to get bees. And so I have, I have a few theories about that. One is that it, they could be just from when they were brought in with the Spanish and mm -hmm. then as bees, you know, they swarm, some of them become what we call feral or wild. But I also think that maybe, maybe by chance there's, there's a pocket of, of some that are maybe that, that did survive, you know, from way back when. 
maybe that are that are closer closely related to that abysmal for Antarctica. And I say this because 2014 got a small grant from the New Mexico Department of Ag, and we brought in a couple researchers. Uh, one in particular was Dr. Juliana Rangel, who's based out of Texas A&M University, and we took her um, north to south. She did 65 samples of bees from Alamogordo all the way up to Taos. And she found that, you know, in the southern counties, because we do have some aggressive strains of bees here, but once you got north, that those weren't really present. And that's just because the elevation, right? A lot of these, what we call Africanized honeybees, were more suited for tropical climates or warmer climates. And so they can't survive where it gets cold. But interestingly, I took her to a canyon community where she collected some samples. And when they were doing the, the mitochondrial DNA analysis, which in basic terms means they're looking at the mother line of the bees, she said that it yielded some really interesting information. She said it yielded a type of strain that didn't match anything else. And so my hope is that we can get more grant funds to bring her back out and to really even look more at this um, to see what, 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 where are these bees and, and maybe they have more to tell us and teach us. So you are extension educator for the land grant program at the Institute of American Indian Arts, which is an art school for Native Americans and others also, but mostly Native Americans. I did not know until until I met you that this is a, a land grant university. Mm-hmm. And so it has this agricultural component. And we just, um, before our conversation uh, for this podcast, we were out looking at the fields that are just getting ready to be planted and getting ready for the summer and the bees. What is it? What's it all about here? Yeah, so the history of IAIA is really cool. And in fact, this is a very, very special year. It's what they call their 60-50 year. It's the 60-year anniversary of the Institute, and it's also the 50-year anniversary of the Museum of Contemporary Native American Art. So it's a very joyous year all around. College itself got started in the 60s and was, uh, I think, actually based um, at Santa Fe Indian School and was a, was like a high school. And folks could get a an associate's degree out of that. And then over time, they were able to expand and they were able to move. They were downtown for a bit, then they moved over to what was formerly the College of Santa Fe. And then they were actually given this property as part of the land grant. And so this is considered what they call a 1994 land grant institution. So like the historically black colleges and universities, tribal colleges became land-grant institutions. And so IAIA is a is considered a tribal college, a 1994 tribal college. And so what that means is that they are congressionally chartered. So with that comes funding to offer a USDA Ag Extension program. So the land-grant program, which to be honest, we would like to have that also be called the Land Arts Program, um, is really focused on agriculture education. And so the campus gardens here started about 10 years ago and they've slowly expanded over time. And so our program takes what we call traditional ecological knowledge or TEK and we pair it with Western sustainable ag science where appropriate. So we run a very sort of interwoven and integrated program here. We offer everything from 
basic gardening skills and greenhouse management to pruning workshops to special events where we also bring other indigenous peoples a number of years ago they did a a wonderful project with some guatemalan farmers and started growing amaranth which we we grow amaranth here now as well we had a really nice harvest of that last year and then also being able to collaborate with our neighboring communities as well so we started the bee program just last year. I came on board in August of 2020. And as I was mentioning when we were touring the grounds earlier, it's really been a blessing and a, and a I, want, I want to call it a, a happy miracle that I ended up here because I, I love science, but I also love um, the arts. And so being at an art school where we can do both and have it be very interdisciplinary has been really refreshing and has also been really just thrilling because we're able to share the gardens. We are not a program of study, so you can't get a degree here in agriculture, at least not yet. (laughs) Maybe down the road they'll consider that. But they do offer several BFA programs, everything from creative writing and entrepreneurship to studio arts to filmmaking and other projects. And then there's also, they just launched their third MFA program. So Indigenous Liberal Studies, Museum Curation, there's um, in creative writing, there's in studio arts, there's all sorts of potentials here for for students to explore. And so our gardens have served as um, backdrops for filming projects, for journalism projects, for creative writing, for art therapy, for all sorts of things. So yeah, it's been really awesome to be able to share space with our campus community. And it's so interesting also because it's an integration in so many ways. I mean, you've got the indigenous practices and the Western science coming together and you've got art and mm-hmm. and agriculture coming together mm-hmm. and the beauty of the place i think plays a role that's hard to exactly put your finger on why it's important but it feels important it does feel really important and i think part of that is because of where we're located you know we are santa fe for those who may not be familiar or what what is also known as ogapoge means place of the white shell water people And so this was a very significant location, right? And as I mentioned, this is where the desert and the plains meet the mountains. And so that that confluence, that convergence is really a very special place in the fact that we have our our Diné, our Keres, our Tiwa and our Tewa peoples, our Apache peoples who have learned to live in these landscapes and who are still here and have never been displaced. That's something I think that we can be really proud of for our communities. Melanie Kirby, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the NM Cool podcast. If you want to learn more about the New Mexico Coalition to Enhance Working Lands, visit nmcool.org. That's N-M-C-E-W-L.org, where you can listen to other episodes of this podcast and learn more about our members' work and ways you can get involved.